In this edition of the podcast, a snowman in the middle of summer in Queensland. We'll speak with Geraldine Barlow at the Queensland Art Gallery and Gallery of Modern Art about art in the freezer. We'll also take a look at creating artwork for a collection of poems by a human rights lawyer. And the Heidi Museum installs the National Gallery of Australia's Terminus. Heidi curator Sue Kramer talks about the reality of virtual reality. I'm Tim Stackpool and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks again for downloading the podcast. Now, I note that the Sydney International Art Series is underway again, and that includes Japan Supernatural at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and Cornelia Parker's exhibition at the MCA. And the best value, as usual, is to buy the Art Pass, which covers both exhibitions. But, and this is a bit of a community service announcement, do note that in the past, while the two exhibitions have run concurrently, as they do this year, Cornelia Parker at the MCA closes earlier than Japan Supernatural. So if you are holding the Art Pass for both, please make sure to visit the MCA before February 16 when Cornelia Parker closes. Japan Supernatural is open until the 8th of March, so don't get caught having seen one, but not the other. And of course, all the details are at www.artpass.com.au. First, though, to get underway, the podcast prize wheel sponsored by Pixel Perfect Pro Lab, and we spin the prize wheel in order to determine the order of our interviews as usual. Pixel Perfect Pro Lab are terrific at faithfully reproducing print versions of works of art, and they also offer full photographic services as well, from stock to processing, with special attention given to colour rendering, customer service and advice. So please do support our sponsor by visiting www.pixelperfect.com.au because their support, it actually goes towards the transcription of our interviews so those art lovers who are hearing impaired, they can also enjoy the content of this podcast. All right, that's pixelperfect.com.au. So now with whiteboard marker in hand, Geraldine Barlow at Quagoma, the art in Stuart Levitt's new poetry book, and Sue Kramer at Heidi. Great, okay. I'll give it a good spin. And we're hearing from the Heidi Museum in Melbourne first up, where, with their pioneering use of virtual reality, artists Jess Johnson and Simon Ward have created an immersive installation in which Jess's drawings are combined with Simon's vision of a mysterious universe, all through the use of virtual reality. The exhibition, called Terminus, is touring nationally. It's commissioned by the NGA, curated there by Jacqueline Babington, but it's currently at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art, where Sue Kramer is curator. Sue, thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Now, this uh, exhibition originally came from uh, another gallery, but why was it that you considered bringing it into Heidi? Well, uh, we were very excited by the prospect of well, firstly, working with Jess Johnson and Simon Ward, who are two leading Australian, well, actually, they're New Zealanders, but New Zealand born, but they do have a history of exhibiting and working in Australia. And in fact, they met in Melbourne. Jess now lives in New York and Simon in New Zealand. Mm. But we were very thrilled to be able to show their work. And we were very excited by the prospect of showing their virtual reality project that mm. they'd been collaborating on because it's such a new and exciting medium. Yeah. And I'd seen the exhibition in Canberra. I went up with my colleague, 
from Heidi to see it. And we were totally blown away by the experience of putting on those virtual reality Mm -hmm. masks Mm. and being taken away on this um, journey uh, into other worlds. It's just such, it's a, a medium that is really at its beginning in a way, even though it's so high tech, mm. who knows where it might go in the future. Mm. And we, we, we thought that it would appeal to a wide range of audiences, as indeed it has done, not just young and uh, tech savvy audiences, but also older, you know, a wide range of, of people. And we felt that it was cutting edge and we wanted to show it. Mm. Now, you, you spoke about it transporting you to another world. And, Absolutely. And this particular, this particular exhibition really does have an alien theme to it. But in terms of VR in general, do you think it really only lends itself to that particular sort of otherworldly type of work? Or do you think it could be extended into, into further types of work? Look, I think VR in itself, it's a tool that can be used in any number of ways. I guess you could say there's a natural affinity in the case of Jess and Simon's work, there's a natural affinity between VR and the kinds of science fiction, fantastical themes that they explore. But as a medium in itself, it, it can be anything. It can be hyper real or, you know, extremely realistic. It can be based on real or imagined worlds. Yeah. There's really no limit to the kind of computer generated world that it creates. So for the viewer who puts the headset on, you are going to have, in a sense, it it will be otherworldly because you as a viewer feel disembodied. Mm -hmm. You're not really aware of your physical surrounds anymore. You are in a different world. Uh, It's an alternate reality. So it is by its very nature otherworldly. Uh, It's a parallel universe, but the nature of that universe is open to the artist to create, and any number of artists will create it in a wide range of ways. So the worlds that Simon and Jess have created are very specific to them, uh, and that's what's so unique and and wonderful about it. But in terms of this type of art, I mean, it's quite isolating in a way. Anyone that saw Sean Gladwell's work at the MCA recently, Pacific Undertow, there was a VR component of that. And watching people take part in that, it, it you really do focus in, as you say, on that alternate reality. Mm. Do you think developing VR art is just a progression of how we are in society now, being isolated, being very screen focused? Well, look, I mean, yes, in one, one way, I think that's true, for sure. But, and, and sometimes that's posed as a criticism, mm. that sort of one-on-one experience. But, you know, you might think, well, it's not that different from reading a book, which is a very uh, oh, yes. enter- entering into your own imaginative world via a vehicle of sorts. Mm. Mm. The other thing that we observe in the galleries is that people talk about it. Once they take the headsets off, they share their experiences and, you know, many conversations are overheard where, mm. <laughs> because it, it's so wondrous and it's so different from what people experience in their day-to-day life that they really want to articulate it to each other. So it's actually a very shared experience in that respect. Yes, funnily enough. Yes, I think people are very excited by it and they want to talk about it. 
Mm. So, and at the same time, the the um, the good thing about the sort of one-on-one experience is that you you get a great intensity whilst you are experiencing it. And each of the five different realms that you experience when you come to the Heidi exhibition, uh, each one is five minutes long, mm. is that for the time you've got the headset on, you are without any other distractions. So it's kind of unique. You, you you can't see anything else. You're not hearing, you know, you're really immersed in that world. And and that's really quite special. So, I mean, as, as Jess Johnson has said that, you know, VR is perhaps the most effective conduit from one brain to another that she's, <laughs> <laughs> that she's ever discovered and that for her as an artist, that is extremely exciting. Mm. The other thing I love about VR, Sue, is that separate to this exhibition, if you are stuck at home, if you are housebound for whatever reason, if you can't travel, then you can do a virtual tour of the Tate or the Guggenheim anywhere yep. from wherever yep. you are in the world and really do get that gallery experience anyway, which is which is completely separate to what we're talking about today. But I think VR has um, opportunities in that area. Definitely, yeah. But in terms of more exhibitions regarding VR, I mean, do you see this as something that artists may embrace even further in order to do that brain-to-brain communication? I think so, yes. I think so. I think that there are um, a number of, you know, very high-profile, well-known artists, uh, even people like the performance artist uh, Marina Abramovich, mm-hmm. who has very much based her whole career on the presence of the artist, the physical presence of the artist mm. vis-a-vis an audience. Well, she has now done her first virtual reality work, which is based on, you know, a work that uses an, an avatar of her and right. you know so so she is exploring this as a one possible avenue of an mm. of her making an artwork i mean i think that it's um it's something that it's a tool that many artists will use mm. into the future i don't think it will replace the other mediums by no. any means because i mean jess herself she's the one who provides the imagery for the Terminus exhibition through her drawings mm-hmm. and uh, and Simon is the one who translates it into the fourth dimensional realm of of um, of VR but she will never stop doing drawings her, her work is very much based in that traditional medium so it's not ever going to replace the the handcrafted art object of her no. drawings no, in a similar way that video or television presentation won't ever replace a painting on the wall. No, that's right. So all these things can coexist. Hmm. You know, it's part of the plurality of, of um, contemporary art. Yeah. And, and who knows in what way virtual reality will extend into the future. And we may have a situation in the future where people can actually view virtual reality together and experience it together somehow. Yes. So it might not be a solo experience anymore. 
And in terms of the the other work that you're talking about, Jess does with her drawing, some of her textile mm. work and in, indeed work that she's yes. undertaken with her mother is we, included in this. In terms of the handcrafted element of the exhibition, because the drawings are the basis of the virtual reality works, we've also extended the exhibition beyond the core of what came to us from the National Gallery in Canberra to include a number of her quilts that she's made collaboratively with her mother. Mm. They had the idea to work together and Jess's drawings have been digitally transferred onto quilting material, which her mother has then made into quilts and adding her own uh, decorative border. So these are very beautifully handcrafted works that also speak to that tradition of women's craft over the generations and it's also a lovely handing down of tradition from mother to daughter and and back the other way as well from daughter to to mother it's a lovely exchange across the generations and it really brings another dimension to the exhibition Uh, they're very beautiful objects and very strange at the same time in in in, in, in quite in the best possible way mm-hmm. we do also have a number of beautiful haute couture garments on display that are a collaboration between Jess Johnson and the Sydney fashion house romance was born Oh, yes. Very, very glamorous evening Mm. gowns. It speaks, on the one hand, to the theme of collaboration, but Mm. it's another example of Jess collaborating uh, this time with fashion designers. And they've, they were inspired by the, um, the detail and the fantasy and the retro futuristic elements in her drawing. Mm. And they were inspired to make their spring summer collection called Mysteria Wisteria. And included a number of extremely glamorous evening gowns that took from a number of designs that Jess had done, pieced together from uh, her drawings. And so it, there's really a quite a fantasy element to these very elaborate garments. And we've displayed them in the exhibition where they take on almost a narrative element within the context of the show. Now, Sue, I just want to ask you on that note, as as a curator, and not necessarily related to this particular show, but in contemporary art, and you have experience with this, with artists coming through and they have so many different aspects to their craft, what they create. And we're talking about here Jess with her textiles, with her fashion design, and with her 3D virtual reality work. What sort of a challenge does that present to you as a curator, trying to create a story or a thread through all these different platforms that they use and then presenting that to the public? Over time, I mean, this has become more common. Have you found it more challenging to curate work like this? Not really. Um, It just becomes more and more exciting. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's... uh... All the time, there's there's as a as a curator, every every project is different, and that's that's what keeps it so exciting and alive. Is that every artist, every project presents new challenges, new ways of looking at things, and so so there's always new possibilities, new ways of bringing things together. And yes, you have to. You there are things you have to leave out in order to make sense of the things that you 
leave in. And, you know, that's the task of the curator, really, but always working in collaboration with the artist to, to work out what's going to make sense as a group and what will fit well within the gallery space. And, yep, it's, it just, just becomes more and more fun, really. I, I've always um, really enjoyed the kind of multidisciplinary nature of, of contemporary art. The cross-connections between the different mediums is what I think is one of the most interesting things. It brings a lot to an exhibition when you can show the connections between different mediums. It, it does sound lovely, Sue, and if anyone did miss it in uh, Canberra, they can get the opportunity to see it at uh, Heidi. And Sue, we really appreciate your time on the podcast. That's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. That's Sue Kramer at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art. Terminus is showing there until the 1st of March, and it's worth taking a look. Visit www.heidi.com.au, that's H-E-I-D-E, heidi.com.au for more details. Two more interviews to go, illustrating a book of poetry or Geraldine Barlow with that snowman in Queensland. Here we go. And let's talk about the art that illustrates the book of poems by Stuart Levitt. Now, the collection is called Too Soon to be Late. It's highly unlikely that a book of poetry would normally be featured in this podcast, but two artists provide illustrations to accompany some of the pieces. The poet, Stuart Levitt, firstly, he's a human rights lawyer, probably best known for being the successful litigator behind the Palm Island class action in 2004, the Storm Financial class action in 2015, and the 7-11 underpayment and deportation scandal in the same year. This book, which has been in the works for over 20 years, turns Stuart's experiences as a lawyer into a compilation of poems covering everything from social issues, human rights and indigenous suffering, as you can well imagine. The art is done by Jeff Todd, who this year received an OAM for his contribution to the arts, and Alan Duffy, an architect by trade. So it's equally visually beautiful as it is written. And at the launch, I was able to speak to both artists, and I began by asking Jeff Todd how it came about, him being one of the illustrators. Well, it's, it's interesting, and it's probably close to 20 years ago that I met Stuart and Adelia. Stuart was talking about me providing images rather than illustrating a book. And because I'm one of those precious artist sort of guys, a fine artist, I liked that idea because I didn't want to become an illustrator, as in branding. Anyway, Stuart then went on to say what he's looking for is visual analogies to go with his poetry. And that led to me and him discussing literally hundreds of paintings and images of mine that I'd done over the years. And the alert people that are looking at the details in the book will see that some of the artwork was done years before the poetry was written. And that was a wonderful way to, to add visual imagery to the book. And tell me in terms of inspiration for the original drawings in the book, did that come easily to you reading the poetry or was there a bit of a discussion regarding well, that as well? Admittedly, there are some that are inspired by the poetry, but the others, and I think this is why Stuart and I got together, uh, he's working in the law from a point of view of a human rights lawyer. I found, found myself, after going to Arnhem Land in 1984, 
sort of swimming around in the same sorts of circumstances that um, Stuart was dealing with. And I'm not quite sure, I think it was through a charity that was Stuart set up that I contributed to the Errol Wiles Justice Foundation that we met and we were raising money together for Indigenous rights, especially within the, the legal system. Mm. We've been mates ever since. And did you find a great satisfaction in taking on this project? I've got to say I really did. It was a long journey, uh, but it was very inspirational because Stuart was interested in all those ideals that have affected me over the years. I, I've not only sort of honoured to be on the journey with Stuart, but uh, I loved it. It was first class. And would you take on a project like this again? I would, only because, and this Stuart wasn't saying, here's a poem, illustrate it. He was saying, here's a poem, what images does that bring to mind to you? And, and sometimes I did new ones, other times I found one that was 30 years old. I also had the chance to chat with Alan Duffy about his art that's included with the poems. I asked him about this being such a departure from his core business of being an architect. It was a great privilege, uh, first and foremost, because it's always great to work with a fellow artist, whether that be within literature, painting, sculpture, or indeed architecture. Um, as one of the famous architects said, Frank Lloyd Wright, architecture is the mother art. And um, I have first-hand experience of trying to integrate all of the arts together through buildings, which I think is a great thing to do. But in terms of the book, uh, it was it was all, something quite different for me. And uh, so in trying to interpret someone's thoughts in word format and then representing that in visual format. Uh, so I, I found that a, a, a great challenge and a great opportunity to express art in a way I hadn't done before. And what's your connection with Stuart? Uh, Stuart, uh, I met Stuart through uh, my partner. So it's through a, a friendly sort of, um, you know, acquaintance, if you like. And he saw some of my art um, which I have online, and he, he, he liked it. So he, he was drawn to that for some reason. And so he asked me then to illustrate some of his artwork. Where did you draw your inspiration from for each of the pieces? Did you ponder over the poems for a while, or did you base it on previous work that you've done? All of the artwork that I have represented in the book uh, today is all original work based on Stuart's poems. Mm -hmm. So none of it has been applied afterwards. So it's a representation, a true representation of my interpretation of the words themselves. So I didn't, um, I have original artworks, but none of those were used for the book. Now, a very satisfying opportunity, I guess, was it? Absolutely, I mean, I often say, and I just said to Jeff earlier this evening that um, I often say to people, I'm an artist masquerading as an architect, <laughs> um, which I, I believe is very true in my case, but I, at least I get to apply the artistic tools in my day-to-day -day work, which I'm very honored to be able to do. So looking ahead then, will we see more work from you, perhaps just from an artistic perspective? Absolutely. I think um, this is a great springboard for me to get noticed um, in the art world. And I, I'm very grateful to Stuart for giving me that platform. And I couldn't think of a, a more interesting and nicer guy to, to give me that opportunity. He's, he's a fabulous guy to know and, and a very easy person to work with. Alan Duffy there, an architect and artist whose work, along with Jeff Todd's, is included in Stuart Levitt's Too Soon To Be Late collection of poems. And you can see a collection of the artwork at www.toosoontobelate.com.
No need to spin the Pixel Perfect ProLab podcast prize wheel, as there's just one interview to go. Geraldine Barlow is the curatorial manager of international art at Quagoma and the curator of Water, which features a snowman along with many other works by leading international and Australian artists. It's a major exhibition that explores the cultural, ecological and political significance of one of life's most vital elements, water itself. And Geraldine joins us on Inside the Gallery. That's a pleasure, Tim. Lovely to be talking with you. Geraldine, it seems remarkable you have this exhibition with the snowman and we know Queensland, it's bright, it's sunny, it's warm during winter. This is a real contrast. How does the snowman appear and how does it fit within the gallery? Uh, the snowman will be coming to us from Switzerland and uh, he basically uh, looks out at us from a freezer with a glass door. So something I really liked about this artwork is it's a, quite a humorous way of reminding us uh, how much we rely upon um, refrigeration, air conditioning, cooling, um, all these kind of systems to keep us comfortable. Uh, but in a way, it, it's... Uh, those same systems that are also causing the warming of the planet, the melting of ice, um, and bringing uh, many creatures more than just snowmen into peril. He's, uh, he's, he's kind of like a cold climate or climate change refugee in a way, isn't he? He is. He's a kind of, uh, you know, advanced ambassador of uh, all sorts of, uh, of global change. Mm. And mm. Uh, I think, uh, you know, in Brisbane, uh, you know, there, there's just about uh, never snow in Queensland. There's a few special spots where it occasionally uh, occurs. But a lot of uh, the people of Brisbane wouldn't have had a chance to see a snowman without travelling a long way. So he looks pretty cute. Um, every few days our team will be actually remaking his smile and his eyes so just kind of really wiping those on with a finger and because he keeps frosting up so he constantly changes he doesn't just reach his furry white optimal peak he keeps kind of pushing out a little bit more frostiness so he sometimes he looks quite happy with where he is and other times you see the frost really hemming him in a bit and he starts to look a little bit scared. Uh, sometimes he looks a little diabolical in his smile when little details change. So lots of personality. Now, you said he's coming from Europe, but along with that, you have a number of artists in this exhibition who are showing for the first time here in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, we do. Julian Charrier, it's the, um, the premiere of, um, of his work in Australia. We've got two um, fantastic images which Julian has made tracing one of his journeys. He's quite an adventurer up into the, the polar areas off Greenland and we can see him taking out a blowtorch to have a shot at melting an iceberg. So they're, they're pretty dramatic uh, images and it's something of a futile exercise. He looks a little bit like a kind of uh, black clad ninja up there with his, the bright flare of his blowtorch and um, yeah I was thinking at the time that it's kind of can be tricky to really put together cause and effect in terms of uh, climate change but um, you know I think sadly it's all becoming uh, much uh, clearer for everyone um, at the moment with uh, all the extreme weather events we've been having. Yes this whole exhibition called Water it does reflect a lot in terms of what you just mentioned when it comes to climate change and mm. I mean do you see a great deal of work by artists today reflect the state of the world the state of the climate and, and the debate? 
I think that there's always been, uh, you know, a passion for the environment, um, whether it's taking joy in the details of the beautiful uh, landscapes and um, seascapes uh, that are around us. That's something that I think artists have always really enjoyed. And there are a lot of different modes of engaging with that. So sometimes I think you see much more um, activist work. So say Julian's work, I think, has more of that kind of activist the skies. Something that I wanted to make sure that we did with this exhibition was not just not to kind of really preach to the converted or tell people that um, show a lot of graphs and things and just repeat the information that was already in circulation. Um, I felt that finding an emotional ground was quite important. I think the politics in Australia unfortunately have been quite divisive so what I thought was a challenge was to try and represent where artists are at, but also deliver an exhibition that can really um, bring people together and remind us of what we share. So that, you know, maybe families, people who come from somewhat different political positions can really go back to something and think, well, you know, we all enjoy swimming in the water. You know, we all want that sense of refreshment and, you know, maybe join in that and then work it through from there. And given the nature of the debate, not just in Australia but around the world, how prepared are you for any type of criticism or deprecating comment that might arise towards the exhibition, if there is going to be any? Uh, I think that uh, something that we have to deal with as a big um, gallery and museum institution is the movement of artworks around the world and also the resources that we use to build exhibitions. So those things are real factors. Um, we're trying to look at them in quite a, a clear sense and be careful about where we make those commitments and um, you know to reduce things around our energy use. So we look at um, you know our, our, the lights that we use, we're looking at things like the temperature settings on the buildings and um, shifting how we you know set those but we're, we're a big slow moving ship in some ways but then we try to be a little radical in others and uh, so a work like Oliver Eliasson's um, Riverbed it um, you know is quite a large scale work that you know uses a lot of resources to bring into place um, yeah there's you know, uh, something like 110 tons of rock in that installation are. I understand there are, yeah. So that's um, that's layered up through from fine sand and gravel uh, to smaller rocks and larger rocks, and um, most of them um, come from uh, relatively nearby. So that's a way that we can show uh, a really interesting international artist, uh, Oliver Eliasson, um, who's recently been appointed um, a UN ambassador in relation to climate change, and um, you know, somewhat lower the footprint and impact of that work but we we have to acknowledge as well there's a, there's a substrate structure to that um, you know we have uh, water hydraulic systems that will create the little stream that wells up in the work and that'll be almost the effect of a landslide of um, rock having kind of come into the gallery so it's a work where you get the sense of our familiar built environment but suddenly nature is kind of crashing into the space and then this little stream is welling up and wending its way through the landscape. So it's it looks like 
the river, the first river at the beginning of time, but it also looks like perhaps there was once a really great big river there and that that river's almost dried up and now just reduced to a small stream. So um, I felt that this, it was a work that was very relevant for Australia, but also a work that makes us think about um, the history of life um, emerging from water. It, it sounds just spectacular, Geraldine. And mm. similarly, in terms of scale, Heritage, it's another installation that has representations of something like 45 animals. Yes, yes. So this is a work by the uh, Chinese-born uh, New York-based artist Sai Gui Chang. And um, these 45 animals uh, include Australian animals. Um, they include uh, animals such as a panda, um, you know, tiger. Um, so animals from all around the world. And they're in this beautiful white space at the centre of which is a blue lake. And that was inspired by Sai's visit to um, Minjeriba or Stradbroke Island here in Queensland, that incredibly beautiful natural environment. And, you know, as he says, uh, a lot of people from around the world think of Australia as this beautiful place of last retreat. So he imagines all these animals coming together here, um, gathering around the one pool of water. So it's a very... um, dreamlike ideal situation but as you look at them you kind of think oh like is this like a frozen moment like what happens next you know what what will the tiger do with the little wallaby across the way and um you know what's what's uh you know how do the instincts of these um animals unfold and and what does this have to say about us as well as as human beings Uh, Geraldine, as we take a look at these works and art as an observer, uh, and just let me digress into this because uh, it's really good that I've actually got the opportunity to speak to you. As an observer, art is contemplative. It's meditative. It's a very thoughtful experience. But you as a curator, are we, and I'm speaking generally as humans, are we lacking more and more the opportunity to do that? Do we need to be more reflective? And should we be looking at installations such as water that you have as an opportunity to do so? the art gallery can be a space of reflection. Uh, it's something that I think, um, you know, we've spoken about um, riverbed as a place to sit and reflect to almost um, hear the water. That's an artwork where people like to come and, you know, perhaps make a little tower of rocks and almost open your mind and take it kind of out into the world and go back to the world feeling differently. I mean, we, we love to offer a space of reflection at the gallery, but also something I wanted to do with this exhibition is try and make it a space for action but a action in a way that can rewire how we uh, think about moving together. So we've got a great work by William Forsyth, the dancer and choreographer, um, who also makes um, sculptural and installation works. And this piece is called The Fact of Matter. And it's an installation of hanging gymnasium rings. And um, he asks us to try and uh, cross from one side to another. And it's a really difficult task, just lifting yourself up and moving through the space just using the ring 
things. And for me, it seemed like a really interesting way to think about the impact of climate change and rising waters, having to lift our bodies, lift our society to another level uh, and kind of watch each other and learn from how we each move and work out how we look out for each other and um, move together in new ways. Wow, that uh, really sounds spectacular, Geraldine. And of course, much of what you do and other galleries around the country, they're able to do this by the generosity of benefactors and corporate support and individuals too. And I want to make mention, particularly with you, of Tim Fairfax, who has helped you quite a bit. Yeah, Tim Fairfax has been a really long-running, fantastic benefactor of the gallery. So The Snowman was a really ambitious work for uh, us to look at trying to bring to Brisbane. And we're really thrilled to have the support of uh, Tim Fairfax once again to you know acquire this work. So The Snowman uh, will uh, arrive for water, uh, but stay on in Brisbane. And, um, you know, Tim's really been a great supporter of the gallery and our children's programs. He uh, and his wife, Gina, they just love, you know, energising the gallery and, um, you know, bringing a whole lot of people in here. So we're, we're really grateful for their support. Yeah, yes, indeed. People like that certainly help across the arts in achieving the type of things that perhaps might not otherwise make it to the gallery. Yeah, and taking a taking a risk, taking a chance, because uh, I think you know the hope is always that art can perhaps contribute to rewiring the debate in a way. And uh, you know we have an artwork by the photographer Peter Dombrovskis, which was at the centre of the uh, campaign to uh, save the Franklin River in Tasmania from damming, called Morning Mist Rock Island Bend. And that artwork really became an icon of that campaign. And I certainly see with many artists the passion for the environment, but they don't always um, have the opportunity for their work to be taken up into the world with that same kind of recognition. So uh, I wanted to remind people that it is possible and um, the perspective of artists I think is really important and beautiful uh, as we try and uh, energise each other to tackle these big challenges. Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely, Geraldine. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing from you on the podcast, and I really appreciate your time. That's a pleasure. Thank you. That's Geraldine Barlow, the curator of water at Quagoma, running from the 7th of December through until the 26th of April next year. And that is Inside the Gallery for now. So please do like and share the podcast so others who love art in Australia can listen in. And be sure to also like our Facebook and Instagram page where we post photos and videos of all the stuff we love. I do try and shoot some video at popular and unusual exhibitions around the place and I do post those videos on the podcast Facebook page. And you'll find links to those pages at our website at www.insidethegallery.com.au And you can also get in touch with us there as well. Thanks to our sponsors, Pixel Perfect Pro Lab, for all your photographic and print reproduction needs. I'm Tim Stackpool, and as always, reminding you that whenever you're in the gallery, remove your backpack, okay? Bye bye for now. <laughs>